Have you ever been a part of something really big and important? You know, something that you go through it and you just think, man, I can't believe I was involved in that. Like, this is just a highlight of my life. One of these times for me came when I was in fifth grade. It's kind of sad, really, that I'm over 40 now, and one of the highlights of my life came in fifth grade. But, hey, take what you can get. We were given an assignment. Uh, it was I lived in Indiana, and I think everybody, all the kids in Indiana, were given an assignment. We had to make a poster about saving energy. So I did what any good elementary school kid would do, and I put it off to the last night. And uh, don't do that, kids. That's don't. It's bad. It's wrong. That's what I did. And so I am not artistic visually at all. Like I can't draw. I can't color. I can't paint. Um, I suppose if you give me lines, I can mostly color within them. But you know, to make something up myself, I'm not gifted in that at all. So I was very lost. So. I opened up an encyclopedia. Kids, your parents can explain what that is later. I, I would, I just opened up an encyclopedia. I turned to energy and, and I saw there a picture of an oil platform. And, and I just thought, man, those guys working really hard. And the light bulb went on and I went, people work hard to give us energy. So don't waste it. So that was the slogan on my poster. It just rolls right off the tongue. You know, it's, it's, I think it's probably got a really neat acronym if you put it together. Kids, you know, people work hard to give us energy, so don't waste it. So I whipped together a, a poster with my brother's help, who was very talented in drawing, and I turned it in. And, you know, done. Made the assignment. A couple weeks go by, and I get called down to the office, and I, I was chosen as one of three in my school that they liked the poster, and it was going to be sent down to uh, Indianapolis, to the state capitol, and was going to be entered into... Uh, potentially being put in a calendar from kids around the state. So they were going to pick 12 posters to get in this calendar. Kids love to save energy. The catch was I had to redo it. They gave us a, a school day that I sat in the office with these two other kids, and we had to redo our posters. This was terrifying because my brother had really drawn most of it. So I'm trying very carefully to copy his copy of... Kids don't copy. That's plagiarism. <laughs> It's bad. Don't do that. Uh, I gave all the money I made from this back. I didn't make any money, but so I suppose it's okay. Uh, so I did it, and I thought, you know, there's no way. I mean, I looked at what my brother had drawn. I looked at what I drew. I'm like, this is awful. This is not going to go anywhere. Turned it in. Wouldn't you know it? A couple weeks, months go by. I get called into the office. You've been chosen as one of 12 kids. Your poster is going into the Kids Love to Save Energy calendar. I thought, this, look at what I'm a part of. Now, if you study history at all, especially energy conservation, I mean, you can trace back to the mid-80s when this took place. This is when corporations really started looking at their energy consumption. And they said, we've got to do something about this. I think the Prius began design after somebody received this, this uh, calendar and opened up. Wow, they work hard. we got to be careful here. The battery-operated cars, all from this poster. Please don't. Don't smash my childhood dreams here by telling me otherwise, okay? Okay, I might be overdoing it just a little bit. But it was kind of neat to be a part of. But that was just a silly little poster. I think my parents have it in their attic somewhere. I don't know if we have a copy anywhere, but we do? Oh, man, I should have brought it. That's my claim to fame. If you have a Kids Love to Save Energy uh, uh, calendar and you want my autograph, I will be available in the foyer after service. But imagine the moon landing, right? 
I mean, talk about being a part of that. Certainly you have your astronauts. You know, Neil Armstrong gets all the press and stuff because he's the first guy on the moon. It's a big deal. What about the the engineers that designed the rockets? What about the engineers that designed the the airlocks and and the lunar lander? What about the mission control specialists? I mean, that's pretty important too. They got great satisfaction. Look at what I was a part of. But what about the guy that spent like six months designing a hinge? And he watched the lunar lander touch down and said, that was, I did that. I was a part of that. I saw a YouTube video a while ago, and it was a guy that worked on one of the Mars rovers. And he was, he, on the video, he said, I just had his teeny tiny little part. But the whole video was him watching the rover land on Mars. This was the one where they lowered it on a tether. It's the coolest thing ever. So the rocket's fired by this thing up here to to slow the descent. And then the rover was lowered on a tether down to the surface. The tether was cut. And the thing that, you know, I don't know what they called the top part, but it flew away. All with no human interaction whatsoever. So they had to design this thing. And him just watching it, he just had this teeny tiny part. I don't know what it was. But he was so excited because he was a part of something huge. Today, we're going to look at someone who understood he had been called to something big. That he was a part of something monumental. The Apostle Paul looked at his ministry and realized he was a part of the eternal plan of God. He had been called to something huge. Open up to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. where we get sort of an inside look into Paul's ministry. Let me read this for us. I'll just set it before us, and then we'll walk through it and look at this call of grace that Paul talks about. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are your glory. Now what's going on here? Paul is actually starting to pray for them. He's he's moving into a prayer. It's a prayer he's going to go into in verse 14. But he gets sidetracked. He kind of sidetracks himself. I love this about Paul. He's so passionate at times that he starts saying something and then he goes, wait a minute, I've got to make sure they understand this and he backs up. 
And so what's going on is he's thinking about everything he's said so far in Ephesians. So when you see a phrase like, for this reason, or maybe your text has therefore, you go back to see what it's about. Well, the immediate context is verses 11 through 22 that we talked about last week and then two weeks before that. This idea that God has made something new. He's brought together these people groups, that the Jews and the Gentiles, that should have had so little to do with each other, that hated each other. And yet in the church, through the power of the gospel, they had been brought into something new. So he's thinking about that and he's going to pray. But even that goes back further. Because at the beginning of chapter 2, he talks about, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions. And then chapter 2, verse 4, but because of his grace, he makes us alive in Christ Jesus. So he says, not only has God made this church, but he made the church by saving you in Jesus Christ. So I think he's bringing that in as well. And he's saying, for this reason. But then we can go back to chapter 1. Well, who is this Christ that can save us? And in chapter 1, he holds up a huge picture of Jesus Christ part of the eternal plan of God, the culmination of all of the Old Testament leading up to the sending of his son and his death, burial, and resurrection. So when Paul says, for this reason, and then he goes on to pray, there's a lot going on in his mind. His prayers are weighty. And we'll look at that next week when we look at Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. But for now, it's interesting kind of the sidetrack that he takes. Because when he does this, He gives us a glimpse into why he does what he does. Why is it that he travels the Roman Empire? Why is it he goes through all these difficult situations? And I believe it's because Paul lived with a purpose. And I believe that because he says it. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, so we knew there's, there's purpose relating to everything he said so far. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, here's another purpose, for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul says, my life and everything I've done were not just me kind of doing what I wanted to do. He said, you people that I'm writing to, I've been doing this for you. Look down at verse 13. He says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. See, Paul's in prison when he's writing this epistle, this letter to the Ephesians. Now, he wasn't specifically in prison because of something he had done in Ephesus at this point. So to say, I'm I'm suffering for you, he's not saying, well, I did something with you and that's why I'm suffering. No, he's saying, I've been preaching the gospel, that's why I'm suffering. But he equates this idea that where the gospel has taken him has led him into suffering and that is good for the Ephesians. Now, think about that for a second. He's been preaching a gospel that talks about how great it is to be saved. This hope that we have. We sang about that earlier. He he brings in there this riches in Christ Jesus, the riches of the fullness of our relationship with God. That's a good thing. He brings in there the joy that we can have in our relationship with God. That's a good thing. So here's all these good things, and then here's the messenger of the good things, and where is he? Well, he's in jail. So there's a problem, right? Okay, this is a really good thing to be in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and yet, man, look at Paul. He's not doing so well. And see, here's where we struggle today, and I think Paul understood they could have been struggling with it then. If the gospel is so great and God is so great, then those who trust in God, everything should go perfectly well. Everything should be wonderful and beautiful, and yet here's Paul suffering. Why? 
And I think we have to ask ourselves, do we have a theology, an understanding of God big enough to understand both the joy and the hope of the gospel, but also the cause to suffer for the sake of the gospel? That these are not separate, opposite things. And my fear is in churches today, it's, it's like we're separating those things and saying, well, God just wants you to be happy. He just, he just wants you to be blessed. If you follow Christ, everything is going to go so swimmingly well and nothing will ever be wrong. And, and people are making tons of money selling books, saying those things and preaching those things and the churches are growing huge. And I read a passage like this and I think, what Bible are you reading? Because Paul would have went, are you nuts? Yeah, have you not seen what I've been through? In fact, turn to first Oh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You know, lest we think Paul was just mildly uncomfortable along the way in his travels and sharing the gospel, look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 20, 23 or so. He's talking about these these other speakers that are coming through the churches, these sort of super apostles, and people are being tempted to follow them, and they're just awesome. But he says, Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. See, they considered 40 lashes like too much. So they would just take one off and that was okay. 39 was okay. And so Paul had that many times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Man, if Paul's writing a brochure for accepting Christ as your Savior, this is not going well, right? Ooh, sign me up. This is awesome. And so he's looking at his present situation, and he's describing to them, and he's, he's sort of moving on into the prayer, and then he goes, wait a minute, I need to explain why it is I go through what I do. Because they need to know. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians is sort of a sister letter to Ephesians. They cover a lot of the uh, same topics. And so they're helpful in interpreting each other. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24, Paul writes about this same idea. Why does he purposefully do things that he knows might lead to suffering, and yet he's okay with that? Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. Boy, have you ever said a phrase like that? Man, I am just so glad for the hardship I'm going through because it's going to be really good for somebody else. I wonder if I've got the faith to speak that way. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Paul says, I'm going through everything I'm going through so that other people can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And he talks about what was lacking in regards to Christ's affliction. And I think it's important to understand what he's saying here because it helps us to understand why Paul does what he does. Is he saying Christ's work was not finished and so Paul has to finish it? Well, no, that goes against everything else that Paul says. Because if we have to finish what Christ has done, then salvation in some way depends upon us. And Paul says it's by grace and grace alone you've been saved. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith in this, not of yourselves. He says that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And so it's not that he's completing the work of Christ. And it's not that Christ's work is somehow not effective enough, so Paul needs to make it more effective, as if something has to be added to the finished work of Christ. No, it's not the completion that's lacking. It's not the effectiveness that's lacking. It's the presentation that's lacking. Follow me for a second. The gospel says that Jesus Christ suffered in your place. He took beatings. He took a crown of thorns. He endured the cross. He endured the scorn and the shame in our place. All of those things that should have been ours, he took it for us. Now, I can hear that. I can maybe imagine that. I can watch a movie that tries to portray that, but I wasn't there. I didn't see it. The people that Paul's writing to, they weren't there at the cross. They didn't see it. So what Paul is saying is that when he suffers, he is demonstrating the very suffering of Jesus. He's giving something they can watch to say, that's how much God loves me. Paul didn't go to the cross to die for them. But he can suffer through punishments and hardships for the sake of the gospel. And they can see that and say, wow, Paul's got a great God and a great Savior. Paul understood that he had a purpose to live, teach, and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even through, and I would say honestly, especially through, suffering. Now, if we have a concept of suffering that says, Our world, or God, owes it to us to remove suffering. How are we going to demonstrate the, the gospel to those who are lost? And I think we need to be careful with that. Because I think there's a lot of pressure on Christians today to cry out, well, I shouldn't have to suffer. I shouldn't have to go through hardships. I have my rights. And Paul's saying, are you kidding me? I rejoice in the suffering. Bring it on because I get to show the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had a purpose in his life. How did he come to this purpose? He was commissioned. A commission is calling somebody to a purpose. And he talks about the commission in several different ways. He uses the word mystery. He talks about the mystery back in Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 2 through 6 talks about this mystery of the truth that the Jews and the Gentiles will both be included in the church. I'm not going to talk about that right now because we've been speaking about that the past couple weeks. But I I do want to explain what a mystery is in Scripture. This is not a secret code. Again, this is one of those things, people write books and people buy them, and how to interpret the secret codes of Scripture. And if you put a letter next to each number or a number next to each letter and you put them in the right order, you read it upside down in a different language, you'll see amazing things. That's garbage, okay? That's not the way our God works. That's not what this means by mystery. Whenever you see the word mystery in Scripture, it's something that has always been present but is now being revealed. That's what the mystery is. It's always been there. 
But now God is showing it to us. Think of it this way. If you're at a banquet hall and there's the big buffet table and you're, you're taking your plate up to the buffet table and you're, you're scooping on the meat and the potatoes and the vet, well, you probably won't get the vegetables, but you know, all the other stuff, you're scooping it on there, you're going along. At the end of that table, there's another table kind of off to the side and there's all these silver platters with covers on them. What's that table? It's the dessert table. They're all covered. What do you want to do when you walk by the dessert table? Do you want to kind of peek it on, open it in there, open it up and go, what is it? Is it my favorite pie? Is it my favorite ice cream? I mean, what is it? I want to know. The dessert's there. It's already there. It's not some secret code. It's just, it hasn't been uncovered yet. But when it is, and it's uncovered, don't you want to let your friends and family know that it's there? And if your answer is no, just stay quiet, okay? Don't, <laughs> don't ruin the moment. Don't you want to let people know? My son's shaking his head. Shame on you. (laughs) It's something good. See, for Paul, as he has come to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he's understood this gospel that reaches into people's lives and changes them, and this mystery that now both Jews and Gentiles can be the new people of Christ together, he's saying people have got to know about this, and I get to tell them. You see what Paul saw himself as being a part of? Something great. Look at verse 2. He uses another word that's amazing, I think. He talks about the administration of God's grace. Administration means stewardship. It's being given something to take care of it or to do something with it. I don't know if, if we think about grace and administration in the same way. That grace is something that we're given, yes, for our salvation, yes, for our benefit, but it's something we're supposed to do something with? Look at the words that Paul uses. Now, Paul understood that he had received grace from God. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Take a left a couple pages. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. In verse 15, Paul talks about his relationship with God, and he says, but when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Paul understands that everything that has happened in his life, anything good, any relationship that he has with God through, through, um, with God through Christ is because of God's grace and only because of God's grace. Look back at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. This is one of the the greatest passages, I think, on grace in the New Testament. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, Paul understands if you have a relationship with God, it is because God did something for you. He sent his son to die for you. We don't get to claim any credit for that. We don't get to stand up in this world and go, man, I'm such an amazing Christian because of all these things that I've done. We don't get to stand up and say, I'm such an amazing Christian because of this amazing church that I have or this amazing tradition that we have. We get to stand up and say, I am nothing, but I'm saved by the grace of God. And that's it. 
Paul understood grace. He had received grace. It had changed him. And I hope the same is true for each one of us. But see, we stop there. And, and it's, it's a lot to chew on that we are saved by grace. That's a huge topic. But we stop there. How great is it that we have amazing grace, right? We sing that all the time, that we have this amazing grace of God. But Paul says, that's just the beginning. I've been saved by grace. I now have a mission. I've been called to be a steward of the very grace that saves me. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. So he's just talked about it's grace that saves you through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not by your works so that no one can boast. But then verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul says, I've received something amazing. Who am I to keep it to myself? I have a mission now in life to share that grace and the message of that grace with everybody I can. That was his commission. That was what drove him. When we're called by God's grace into a relationship with him through Christ, It's not just about us. God has a plan to work through the people he saves to reach the person next to them and the neighborhood around them and the city around them and the culture around them. We become stewards of the gospel. We've received a call to a mission. You say, this is scary, Dave. I mean, come on, our culture's falling apart. The world's turning against us. How are we going to go out in this ministry of the gospel? How are we going to do that? Guess what? It was scary in Paul's day, too. It's always been scary. I think we practice a lot of hand-wringing, and and we look at our culture, and we go, oh, it's all falling apart, and it's never been this bad. Yes, it has. Frankly, it's been much worse. And guess what happened to the gospel in those difficult times? It did just fine. Because that's how strong the gospel is. You see, Paul had confidence. And he's going to talk about his confidence. In fact, I see three reasons that he gives for his confidence. And the first is that it's all about God's grace in the first place. Paul wasn't going out into these cities. He wasn't facing prison. He wasn't facing beatings thinking, man, I hope I'm good enough. He faced these things saying, I know God's grace is strong enough. So I get to keep going. Paul knew his ministry wasn't about him. He says, verse 8, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me. Friends, we live in a culture, this Western American culture that loves to make much of the individual. I hear sometimes, and maybe you don't hear it, but my wife and I talk about this often. People talk about building your platform. You need to build your platform. You've got to build your brand recognition. People need to know your name and know who you are. That makes no sense with the gospel I see in Scripture. We need to disappear and the gospel needs to help be held up. Paul, over and over again, who could have pointed to himself, pointed away from himself to Jesus Christ. His confidence was not in his ability was not in his preaching, was not in his travel, it was not in his writing, it was not in his background. His confidence that led him through these difficult situations was in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's where his confidence was. The other thing that gave him confidence was that he understood he served for the gospel. Look at the end of verse 8 into verse 9. 
He says, although I'm the least of the Lord's people, here's what was given to me to preach the Gentiles, the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everybody, everyone, the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. He had confidence because he believed in what he was bringing. I've never been much of a salesman. You know, maybe some popcorn for a junior high band or something like that, but They say in sales, you have to really believe in what you're selling, right? The more you believe in it, the easier it is to sell because you truly believe you're helping the people around you by selling them that thing. Paul believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice that he didn't have a plan just to make people feel better. He didn't have a plan or a hope to just make the world a better place. His goal was not to overcome hunger or poverty. Now, all of those things happened because of his ministry. Cultures were changed. Lives were changed. Poverty was overcome. People were fed that were struggling. All of that was a part of his ministry, but it wasn't the purpose of it. The thing that kept him going, that gave him confidence, was the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that truth, that the Son of God died on a cross and rose from the grave, would change people. And so he held on to that and he said, that's why I'm preaching to the Gentiles. That's where I, why I'm going around to all these places. That's why I endure sufferings. Sometimes I wonder, as the American church, are we lacking confidence? And if we're lacking confidence, is it very possible that it's because we've taken our eyes off of the gospel and put it on something else that we hope will help people? We think maybe we'll save people, we'll maybe make them feel a little better. And then we look around us and go, oh, it's not working. What do we do? And we try something else and our confidence goes down and down and down. Paul would have none of that. He focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The final thing that gave Paul confidence is that he understood he was a part of God's great plan. Verses 10 through 11, he holds up a picture of the church that is amazing. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. I've talked about this several times before, but God has a plan to hold up you and I, the church of Jesus Christ, people saved by Christ, messed up, hurting, struggling, messy people like us, the church and hold us up to all of the spiritual powers of the world and all the physical powers of the world. And God says, look at what my grace does. You can't do that. I'm greater than you. We are the demonstration of the grace of God in the world. And Paul says this is not just some new thing that came about. It's not some novel idea. It's been God's plan from the beginning. So Paul understands in his ministry, in his travels, in his sharing of the gospel... He's a part of something huge. Talk about being a part of something important. Paul says, I'm a part of the eternal plan of the Lord of heaven and earth. That's what I do. What do you do? That's what I'm a part of. And man, it gave him confidence. What if we knew this plan of God and really trusted it? What would it do to our confidence as a church, as believers in a culture that's more and more turning dark, what confidence would we have? If you're here today and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've been called to something much greater 
than some silly energy conservation kid calendar. You've been called to something greater than the lunar landing. You've been called to something greater than the rover landing on Mars. You've been called to something greater than anything you can point to in history and say, wow, you've been called to the eternal plan of the maker of all things. And he said, I'm going to use you to do amazing things. Live purposefully for the gospel. Understand that you have a commission, a call from the gospel in your life to share that with others and live with confidence in that. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, I want you to hear the call of the gospel in your life. I want you to hear that God's grace through the message of the gospel is calling to you right now and saying, come, come be a part of something that's so much bigger than anything you can do. A plan that will never fail, never waver. It will succeed because Christ is coming back and his church will be with him forever. That's what we're a part of. And you can be a part of that as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I think of the words of Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Father, I wonder, would we be able to say the same? Would we understand that not only have we been blessed by the gospel, not only have we received great benefit from your grace by being saved, by renewed to a, being renewed to a right relationship with you, being called together, all these amazing things of the gospel, but then to also say we're now stewards of that truth. The grace that we have received, we now have to do something with it. We need to share it with people around us. Because that mystery has been uncovered and they need to hear it. And you've chosen to work through us. Messed up, feeble people that we are. So that you get all the glory. And when people look at us and say, how can you do that? How can you guys love each other that way? How can you have that hope that you have? We could say, it's not about us. Let me tell you what I'm a part of. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And God, we're about to celebrate and remember through this act of communion what Christ did for us on the cross and the resurrection. And through communion, declare it is through the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed in our place, it is through that and that alone that there can be salvation. And I pray if there's anybody here that has not accepted that good news in their life, may they do so right now. May they just cry out to to you and say, God, I'm a sinner and I accept your forgiveness through Christ. And then may they understand that communion is the celebration of that new thing they are a part of. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.